1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of today's podcast, which is the second installment in our two-part series focusing on Latino urbanism. Today I'm pleased to have Lana Barber with me to discuss her recent book, Latino City, Immigration and Urban Crisis in Lawrence, Massachusetts, 1945 to 2000, published by University of North Carolina Press in 2017. Dr. Barber is Assistant Professor of American Studies at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury, where she teaches courses on U.S. immigration, urban history, and Latino history. Hello, Lana, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies.
0: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: Well, it's great to have you here and so excited to discuss your book. I'm wondering if you could just start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to write the book.
0: <laughs> um. <laughs> So, as you mentioned, I teach over at the SUNY Old Westbury. I teach in the American Studies Department there. But my degree is in history. And I um, started a PhD program in history at Boston College in 2000 and uh, – no, sorry, in 2004. Um, and, you know, I had had some – I had been to Lawrence. I have some familiar family connections with Lawrence. I had spent some time in the city. And when I first – came to the city in 2003, I was really blown away by it. it nothing. It's up in Pastoral, New England. It's a small city north of Boston, up in near New Hampshire. And yet when you cross over into the boundaries in Lawrence, it's suddenly all brick, and it's overwhelmingly Caribbean. And it's mm. a very distinct, sharp change. And so when I first got to the city, I had this immediate, where did this come from? How did it become this place, what, what accounts for, what explains the existence of a, a place like Lawrence up here in rural New England, effectively. Um, and so when I started my PhD program in 2004, there was really no question for me that that was going to be the focus of my research, because as I wanted to know more about it, there was nothing that had been written about Lawrence's post-World War II history. Um, and yet, everything I saw in the city resembled In some way, little things that I was learning about the late 20th century in my studies. And I really very quickly came to realize that Lawrence both showed some of the most important things that I was learning, but also really showed the way that industrial cities mainly became impoverished in the post-World War II era through disinvestment um, and suburban competition for economic resources. So Lawrence absolutely showed that And yet, in all of the books I was reading about that process, they were all about how that impacted and in some ways was a response to African-American urban communities. And so the fact that I was in Lawrence and I was in a place that was so heavily Dominican and Puerto Rican, I mean, Lawrence by 2000 was already majority Latino. At this point, it's nearly 75% Latino, mostly Dominican and Puerto Rican. So to be in a place that was so heavily dominican and puerto rican and yet also had clearly experienced the same history of urban economic decline and segregation that a place like detroit or uh, other cities that were more associated with urban crisis had experienced showed me both that i was seeing something really typical but also seeing something really you know uh unrepresented at that point in the literature and But also at the same time, you know, as I was in graduate school and learning about the tremendous immigration from Latin America that happened in the late 20th century, Clearly to me, Lawrence captured that as well. Why the city that had been, you know, had gone from having just a a handful of Puerto Rican families in the 1950s to being 75% Latino today, that Mm -hmm. transition was clearly related to the, the, you know, the huge kind of phenomenon of immigration from Latin America in the late 20th century. So I really, you know, I I have people ask me a lot, "Why, why Lawrence, why Lawrence? And I do, I certainly have uh, personal ties to the city. But ultimately, the personal ties weren't what motivated me to to write the book and do the research. The, what motivated me was that I really came to believe that Lawrence show, showed us the intersection of immigration, Latin American immigration and urban crisis in the late 20th century, and that it really kind of demonstrated the two, in my opinion, most important historical developments of the late 20th century.
1: Certainly, certainly. And, and I appreciate you Going through it and describing that because it's something that I noticed right away from the book uh, naturally that the title you know struck me um, uh, and, and then but and also what I realized what I saw that this was Lawrence Massachusetts right and I think Latino City you know, I'm thinking of course uh, you know this just my geographic <laughs> bias but yeah either you know Miami or I'm thinking the Southwest or L.A. something like that and I think. New England right <laughs> how like as you mentioned how did that happen where did we get there mm-hmm. and and so uh as you bring in you know the interweaving of of these two you know an, Narratives and, and lines of historical scholarship, you know, the the, the urban crisis, as it's called, right—that is, right the, the 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 troubles that occurred in urban, particularly urban northern cities, midwestern cities after World War II, but then also integrating that with the migration history and the Latino experience history. Uh, I think is you know a wonderful contribution that that the book makes. Um, the book itself focuses a bit more, you know, it, it, what it does is it extends this discussion of what we call the urban crisis, which typically is discussed in the, you know, 60s and 70s, right? begins right after World War II. Uh, this goes a bit farther. You extend that narrative into, into the 80s and 90s. But before we get there, can you tell us a little bit more about Lawrence and what it was like before the, you know, the big waves of, of Latino migration?
0: Yeah. So Lawrence, when people have heard of the city, they're familiar with it from the, as a site of the bread and roses strike that happened in 1912. Lawrence was a big textile town, a mill town, and it was known in the early 20th century as the immigrant city because it's textile mills had attracted so many Europe, largely European immigrants in that earlier era. Um, and then, you know, as, as we know from many industrial towns, um, Lawrence in the post-war decades began to de-industrialize, right? Mm-hmm. That happened in textiles a little bit earlier But certainly by the early 1950s the textile mills had moved uh, To the south they had moved some to Puerto Rico. They had mm-hmm. moved, you know, they they <laughs> fascinating um, and the city was kind of in a rut the city began to scrape around to see how they could replace their industrial manufacturing base effectively mm-hmm so they began to try to recruit other kind of high tech industries, uh, Western Electric, for example, you know. Um, but ultimately, in the post-war era, like we see in a lot of places, deindustrialization, as we see in Detroit, deindustrialization is not so much necessarily that, that the U.S. stops being an industrial power in the 1950s, right. but then much of industrial production itself moves to the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And so Lawrence in the postwar decades was competing with its suburbs for these new industrial employers. And one of its major suburbs, Andover, went on to become, at this point, you know, it rivals only Boston for the number of manufacturing jobs that provides in, 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 in the state, in Massachusetts. So Andover actually, there are lots of things that still get manufactured Right. In Massachusetts, Andover has Raytheon as the largest number of jobs in industrial jobs that exist in the state now. Right. And there are a lot of things that still get produced. They just get produced in the suburbs, no longer in these industrial cities. Um, so Lawrence in the post-war decades went through a very similar experience to many cities in the northeast and the Midwest, in that its residents began to move to the suburbs and take advantage of um, the federal and, and private support for suburban mm-hmm construction and home ownership, Um, retail establishments moved out to the suburbs and they constructed malls and um, Lawrence's downtown began to shutter, effectively began to be shut down. Um, And the textile mills moved, moved away and the new manufacturing that moved to the area overwhelmingly settled in the suburbs as well. So even before, um, even before Latino migration to the city became really substantial, white flight suburban competition, the decline of Lawrence's tax base was already well underway. Lawrence lost 40% of its white population before 1980. And the 1980s, the Latino migration really, you know, uh, becomes strong in the city. So, you know, Lawrence really kind of encourages us to look at those pull factors of suburbanization that even before, you know, Lawrence never had a substantial African-American population. So the white people, leaving Lawrence, who were largely white ethnics, the children of those earlier European immigrants, white people who were leaving Lawrence were moving to the opportunities that the suburbs provided, not fleeing any type of racial tension uh, within the city itself. When gotcha. racial tension arose in the city, then people fled for that reason right. as well. But in these early decades after the war, it was really just that, you know, the post-war era, in the U.S., if you were white, was a time of tremendous opportunity, and people were moving to the suburbs to take advantage of those opportunities.
1: Yeah, I found that interesting how there are kind of these these, these two stages of white flight that occurs in this narrative, and and that the first isn't tied necessarily to that traditional notion of mm-hmm. uh, of how at least it's presented both in media and some some of the history, um, and that you know the the middle class whites are, are fleeing um, more. You know, they're diversifying neighborhoods, right? They're they're fleeing, mm-hmm. they're, they're fleeing African Americans or other uh, non whites that are moving into the areas, and this is much more as you mentioned that pull factor of of what was going on in the suburbs, um, and then later on, you know, there's a racial component to it. What I also found so fascinating too is, you know, as the more traditional manufacturing, in this case, it was textiles, right, um, that was leaving Lawrence. Did in fact go to you know the Caribbean and it went to Puerto Rico and, and areas where eventually uh, migrants came from and and you refer to uh, the Latino migrants here as uh, imperial migrants so you just elaborate a, a bit mm-hmm. more on that and perhaps even that kind of neat connection between now just so happens that these uh, you know the out, the offshoring uh, outsourcing of of uh, manufacturing to the Puerto Rican island and eventually you get this migration that's that's coming to the city.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah I mean certainly it is i you know I try to focus a lot on the the race to the bottom that occurs as people begin become desperate, both the city and you know globally uh, nations globally become desperate to attract private capital and what they have to do in order to in terms of tax exemptions and what they have to what they try to do to attract private capital and how that that kind of in some ways to me is one of the pillars of neoliberalism is mm-hmm. that you know we go from thinking about people doing labor to people having the privilege of having a job and right. so providing jobs that idea that a job is something so fantastic that you have that someone gets gets to congratulate it for providing it to you as opposed to no that's labor that you perform right um, that that's one of the big shifts that happens both in Lawrence and in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic that the e- economic disinvestment creates uh the governments in in all cases become absolutely preoccupied with attracting investment and the type of policy that is amenable to investment is not the policy that is suitable for social and 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 um and popular development
1: effectively right.
0: um but, yeah, I use the term imperial migrants because I really um, want to tie together. One, I think, you know, following Juan González, I think that La- the, the waves of Latino immigration in the late 20th century are the harvest of empire. Right. right? I think that, you, you, know, over, you know, although the, every individual person has their own story, their own reason, I think if you're talking about the tens of millions of of Latinos who are in the US that sheer on a social scale, that level of Latino immigration cannot be explained without talking about the history of US intervention into Latin America. Um, and particularly if you are talking about Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, because ultimately when people talk about what they're looking for, why they moved, in general, people don't wanna leave their homes. And so when people talk about why they have left their homes, often there is this sense of, well, I wanted a better life that wasn't available where I was. And so to me, as a historian, that really begs the question of, Well, why wasn't that better life available where you were? What is the history that made it so that if you wanted your child to get a good education, if you need if your mother needed good health care, why you couldn't get that where you were, why you had to go somewhere else for that? Right. What is the history of why that those educational opportunities, those health opportunities, those employment opportunities, even though I don't want to use that term job opportunities. Right. Um, (laughs) Right. Why they were not available where you were or why, you know, their, the cost of food was so high. What You know, to me, I really am interested in creating the, um, in, in telling the history of these larger political and ac- political economic circumstances that encourage migration. Um, and again, if you are looking specifically at the Dominican Republic in Puerto Rico, the, the, the stamp, the 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 thumbprint of the United of U.S. intervention is just so overwhelming, and so Mm -hmm. I really trace in with with both Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic the history of U.S. intervention and how U.S. intervention shaped the political and economic circumstances that people were leaving from. Um, And to me, you know, that becomes particularly important not just because it reframes how we understand. Um, act, latino activism here but also be in the sense let me bracket that for a second, not only because it reframes how we understand Latino activism here, but also because I think it is the what people experience here in the US and that mm-hmm. tale of displacement to cities like Lawrence is a, an essential coda is essential part of the history of US intervention. You can't the entire story of the impact of US intervention isn't told until you also tell the story of displacement and right. what people who are displaced encountered. Um, but I also think it reframes, as I was saying earlier, the activism of Latinos in the U.S. Because when we have this this narrative of immigration as opportunity, then there is this presumption that people ought to be grateful. Right. And that was overwhelmingly what I, you know, the the resistance that that many Latinos in Lawrence encountered was often framed in that you're not entitled to this, you don't deserve right. this, right? Um, and to me, this narrative of we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. This narrative of you know Latinos are here because the U.S. messed up <laughs> in many ways, people's home countries. That history of you know of adds tremendous weight in my mind to Latino claims for the right to the city, for
1: right.
0: rights, and and it. Claims on equality in the United States, effectively. So I really do. I try to highlight throughout the book, even though I only spend a small section talking about the history of U.S. intervention in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, I try to highlight that imperial migration aspect of it throughout. Like there's a a part where um, there's a Puerto Rican veteran of the U.S. Army, of course. Living in Lawrence in the 1970s, and um, his family is interviewed, is profiled by the local paper, um, and they're talking about they're, they're talking about the kind of basically street level harassment and discrimination yeah. that his five year old daughter is experiencing. Um, and she was five years old the first time she heard the word "spick," and and the way that the economic opportunities that he was finding in Lawrence were not what he expected. The work right. was dangerous the work was uh, unstable they were periodic layoffs it was an industry in decline Um, and so the the economic opportunities weren't there the living conditions were not what they had hoped for and then on top of all those you know so again was this the better life that people were coming for on top Mm. of all those kind of economic problems then they're also having to reckon with the kind of their their children being taunted for being latino and you know so to me, that story is offensive and, and outrageous no matter what, but it becomes even more offensive and outrageous when we remember that he was a veteran of the U.S. Army. This mm-hmm. is somebody who had, you know, effectively a colonial subject who, you know, because of the conquest of Puerto Rico had been drawn with into the, the orbit of American empire and was now trying to find, carve out a place for himself within that empire And was reckoning not only with the the chaos that that had caused and the economic devastation that had caused in Puerto Rico, but the kind of disinvestment, segregation and basic day to day quotidian harassment and racism that that created in Lawrence as well. And so Mm -hmm. I really am trying to keep that 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 frame of empire throughout, even when I'm talking about just street level kids being called, you know, bad names in the city effectively. Yeah, and
1: it's such important context, and and that working, you know, that like the the context of again imperialism, uh, along with the the second part that you brought up, you know, the dis- the, the aspect of displacement that these migrants mm-hmm. experienced is so essential to understanding this experience. Uh, can you elaborate a bit more on you know why Lawrence? You know, what what is it that brought uh, these, particularly two Latino groups, or primarily Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, uh, in in different I hate to use the word wave. I, I hate these water metaphors when it comes <laughs> to migration, but I can't think of anything better right now. These, 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 these two different exactly, migrations. Exact same pause
0: every time I almost say wave. I'm like, where is there another word for wave right here? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but they essentially come in two most kind of separate migrations. Can you tell us why? So, what, what was it about Lawrence that that brought uh, the Latinos there?
0: Yeah. And, and to be clear, in this case, you know, it's more a conceptual distinction than it is. Right. There is no real break in between yeah, um, yeah. to help us. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's nothing necessarily to people who study Latino migration. There's nothing surprising necessarily in why Lawrence, because ultimately, initially there were economic opportunities there the latinos were actively recruited to take jobs in the remaining industries that were there as they tried to remain competitive by exploiting the 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 same workers that their competitors were going overseas to exploit so there you know there are early stories of people saying well um there was plenty of work. I, I brought so and so to the factory, and they asked her if if she had her lunch with you with with her. They hired her that first day. They didn't care if she had papers or not. Um, I got fifty dollars for bringing my cousin. I got fifty dollars. You know, I was offered this. You know, lots of people talking about. I was given a recruiting bonus if I could bring someone else in. Um, so in the 60s and the early 70s, the the industries that remained in Lawrence actively in the 70s and early 1980s, then it becomes a little, the traditional narrative of economic opportunity or jobs becomes a little bit more complicated because very quickly unemployment becomes a major problem in Lawrence. People are not moving to Lawrence for jobs Anymore, once those industries effectively shut down by 1990, Lawrence has nearly a 25% Latino unemployment rate. So the mm-hmm. economic situation of this deindustrializing city becomes quite stark. And even by 1990, even many of the many of those Latinos who have a job work out in the surrounding suburbs, not within the city itself. Um, so, but ultimately what accounts for the continued migration to the city is family kinship networks right Right. people are still attempting to to reunite their families and ultimately lawrence really although lawrence is not the only latino majority city in the area other small cities have really taken on um throughout new england have taken on similar characteristics Uh, lawrence really becomes a hub of for, being, for providing a bilingual social service sector, for having uh, Spanish language retail places, Spanish language celebrations, Latino uh, cultural celebrations, it really becomes uh, in some ways the, the, a center of Latino community life in mm-hmm. the region. So that continues to draw people as well. But ultimately, one of the things that I'm really trying to argue is that the sheer concentration of Latinos in Lawrence is not just about what's so special about Lawrence. It's about what's so exclusionary yes. of, of other areas, right? right. So Lawrence, you know, I have maps in the book that really show the 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 concentration of Latinos within the municipal boundaries, and it's overwhelming that of the entire it, it's a tiny little city It's not no bigger than seven square miles it's never had more than a hundred thousand people um and yet the suburbs around lawrence are overwhelmingly white overwhelmingly white there's only one by 2000 there was only one census track in you know one little area of one suburb that even had twenty five percent Latino settlement, right? So the concent- so it's not so much what draw drew Latinos to Lawrence. It's about you know family and and certain opportunities are what draw people to the area. But then segregation and suburban exclusion is what concentrated people mm-hmm. within the municipal boundaries themselves. And so I really. You know, I try to talk not just about what displaced people from Puerto Rico and the main republic, but what specifically was going on in New York City in the 1970s, because many of the early exactly. Latinos who went to Lawrence came lived in New York first. Um, what specifically was about deindustrialization and suburbanization in New York City that pushed people out, the displaced people from New York. But then when people came to the Lawrence region, the kind of greater Lawrence area, I spend a lot of time looking at what made their only option for settlement for for poor and working class people at least within the city boundaries itself um and you know which is where i think you know again lawrence is not typical in this this is something that um You know, the whether or not you think about big cities, little cities, rural areas, you know, there is so much of Latino settlement, again, for poor and working class Latinos overwhelmingly were concentrated into areas in which capital and resources had fled ultimately. And so this process of, you know, segregation and disinvestment, whether it's in the city or whether it's in the more kind of complicated geographical areas of the Southwest, um, segregation and disinvestment is absolutely a hallmark of poor and working class Latino experiences in the in the late 20th century. And really, Lawrence shows us that quite starkly. And so I I really tried to get away from, you know, of course, people move to be with families. But Mm -hmm. I really tried to not portray this as a question of what was it that was so fantastic about Lawrence that drew people in because right. I really think that the, the question of what makes other spaces unlivable and what makes other spaces exclusive exclusionary is an equally important part of the history
1: Certainly definitely I also you, you've mentioned a number of things there that, that lead me to the to you know, the next question that is essentially is, is how does the experience of you know Latinos in, in Lawrence, both, kind of, you know, in ways parallel, um, or in, no, not parallel, but intersect with, and then diverge from the urban crisis narrative that is more familiar. That is more based mm-hmm. on, again, the African American experience in actually bigger cities, as you mentioned, like Detroit or mm-hmm. you know, other, you know, Midwestern towns. As, as mentioned, Lawrence is a smaller city, as, as you refer to it as a second-tier city, never mm-hmm. above a hundred thousand uh, people in population. Um, but yet, there's similarities with that urban crisis narrative. Um, and then divergences can you so can you talk a bit about that what are those uh, similarities but then also particularly the, the divergences as it comes to Latinos and in, in, in this space
0: yeah so there, there's two aspects on that one is you know the the narrative as we know it focuses yes on larger cities and focuses more on the impact of urban crisis on African-american communities so um, I'll deal with that first and then I'll come back Great. to the sure. city size second um, you know, so certainly one of the things I really try to emphasize is that if the story of Latinos in Lawrence sounds a lot like, you know, Tom Segrou or just the urban crisis in mm-hmm. Detroit, it's because the history is very similar. This is, uh, you know, as I was saying when I was working on it, the L- Lawrence has Latinos, Detroit has African-Americans, but it's the same white people. <laughs> it's the same federal policies. It is the same kind of cultural moment. It is the same... S- really media landscape that is operative for white people in greater Lawrence as it is for white people in Detroit so Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily it shouldn't be surprising these similarities and really one of the things that I'm trying to argue is that when Latinos immigrated you know or or When this Latino immigration really began to transform the U.S., it's not just that Latinos are immigrating into a specific social sphere here. They're immigrating into a very specific spatial arrangement, and that spatial arrangement has been determined largely by anti-black prejudices. So the reality of lily white suburbs and white flight and urban disinvestment and urban economic decline and the the resultant economic and social crises that, that provoke in the city disinvestment and segregation have been created in many ways as a response to as a form of anti-black racism to, to simplify it. And yet you, for poor and working class, not only Latinos, but immigrants Immigrants of color more generally as Eric Tang has talked about for Cambodians right for poor and working-class immigrants Broadly if you move if you arrive in the u.s. in the crisis era Overwhelmingly the crisis city is going to shape your experience and so the experience of Latinos in Lawrence resembles the more paradigmatic black experience of urban crisis not necessarily because Latinos were racialized as black although some certainly are of african descent there there that, there's that element as well but mostly because anti-black racism shaped the the economies and the cultural perceptions of cities during the crisis era so to be marked as a, as an urban latino during the crisis era was to was to carry with it um certain stigmas certain ideas certain associations and also was to in often involved the lack of certain economic opportunities school funding healthcare opportunities um, so what's different of course is you know th- that certain people experiences are different right the fact that they're not exper- that they're experiencing kind of a paradigmatic anti black Racial, racial formation doesn't necessarily mean that it changes their identity, right? People still identify um, the, the way that they do. But also the specific types of justification for the anti-Latino racism that many people experienced in Lawrence was somewhat different. A lot of the white resistance in Lawrence focused on the presumed foreignness, focused on Latinos' uh you know accusations of third world poverty and that they were bringing this third world style poverty Mm -hmm. uh focused on language so the the terms by which white people attempted to resist latino settlement in the city were specific but the the realities of disinvestment suburbanization white flight were common to the story that we already know if that
1: makes Mm -hmm.
0: sense great Um, and then small cities you know, you mentioned earlier about the um, that I pulled the story all the way into the 80s and the early 90s. And certainly, you know, urban. if you think about what was happening in urban communities of color in the 80s and the early 90s, the crisis had absolutely not ended. Right. Mm-hmm. This is when crack hit American cities. This is, you know, the 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 worst crime in U.S. cities was occurring in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that to me, the urban crisis era extends through the, from the sixties through all the way through the early 1990s. Right, right. Um, if that is not reflected in the historiography at present, I think that is partly the result of the fact that 80s and 90s are like, you know, the new frontier for historians or yeah. it's barely history. For exactly us. right. Um, but also the fact that in the 80s and 90s in large cities, this crisis narrative is complicated by gentrification mm-hmm. that in cities like New York, New York, the 1980s is also while it's still. In many in neighborhoods, in poor and working class neighborhoods of color, it's still absolutely the crisis era. In other neighborhoods in New York City, it begins to be the era of gentrification. Right. And so if we take a, a major metropolitan center frame, if we're looking at Boston or Chicago or New York City, then the 80s means something different to us. But if we're looking at these smaller cities like Lawrence, like Flint, for example, if we take instead of looking at Detroit, if we're going to take our, that, that area as our standard, instead of looking at Detroit, if we look at Flint, we right. look at these smaller cities. Um, the reality is that that the urban crisis era persisted, and that mm-hmm. many of the cities experienced kind of extreme and ongoing disinvestment in the '80s through uh, into the early 1990s. Sure. Um, and so that that small city lens and had ultimately the, the, that absolute the way that, that being a small city undermined many of their tax bases really created a different narrative. There you know, in, in Massachusetts in the late eighties and early nineteen nineties, many of the small impoverished cities sued the state to get more school funding. It was a pro- because they were unable to provide anywhere near the level of school funding that their suburban neighbors or that Boston could provide. So Boston, you know, in its even though Boston was still had many neighborhoods that were suffering from disinvestment and segregation, Boston also had an economic backbone. Boston was experiencing, you know, an economic Renaissance in some ways already by the 1980s. And so even though it's schools were problematic it was able it, the the per pupil school funding that it could afford to pay was much higher than what small cities like Lawrence could provide, and so ultimately you know, the the experience of these cities that it, it shows us the persistence of urban crisis because yes. these cities did not gentrify in this era. Certainly, and still, I, Lawrence has not gentrified yet.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think that that does make so much sense, particularly for for. So many that have then you know lived through the '80s and '90s because it became this moment, particularly um, you know one of them you discussed, you know the '84 riot, uh, you know in Lawrence, um, then you know also latter ones that came in the '90s, particularly you know with LA or in, in Brooklyn, you know these these moments where uh, that that crisis narrative again became familiar and people were kind of shocked, you know to see again riots or rebellions pop up again when this was like whoa wait this happened 30 years ago I thought we were past this. It mm-hmm. does show, right, that that these conditions had not end, and maybe they were shifting to certain other geographical locations and spaces, but certainly that that element of crisis was still, you know, operating uh, mm-hmm. due to very similar forces.
0: And you know, I I ultimately think that also in terms of that narrative and what people are how people are aware of. Uh, crisis I think that you know through the 80s into the early 90s even through the late 90s even as the actual reality of urban economies was shifting the media narrative around the inner city and what urban meant was not and so there was still this um a, a media obsession with with urban as code for black or Latino, um, and as code for poor and as code for underclass that persisted through at least the mid-1990s. And so, you know, I I have had one editor say, Lawrence, because Lawrence officially now isn't even a city anymore. Lawrence in the census doesn't, the census doesn't consider it a city anymore. And so, you know, suburban studies, suburban histories are all the rage. And so I did have one editor to just say, this is not a history of a city, this is a history of a suburb, tell this story as, you know, Latino suburb and it'll be a, it'll be a more accurate story. Mm -hmm. And to me, what that leaves out it, you know, to be when you are in Lawrence and both through all the sources, but even today, the stigma of the inner city is so thick and operative there. The reality is that so much of the kind of basic, you know, anti-Lawrence sentiment that Pervades the region. This some of the quotes I have from suburban residents of I, I don't even go there. I drive in circles around it. Right. We should just find the entire place and start over. You know this whole the anti Lawrence sentiment that is racialized but is also you know class based and is also you know in someone has a life of its own is so based around these ideas of the stigma of the urban during the crisis era the stigma of the inner city um, and so to talk about Lawrence now suddenly as a suburb makes that entire, makes the stigma that cities and and urban residents got in that era just completely invisible. And Mm -hmm. so absolutely, even though there were some cities that were gentrifying in the 80s and 90s, and even though there were some pockets of urban wealth in the 80s and 90s, if someone said urban in the 80s and 90s, what they were talking about was a poor community of color. That was the stigma. That was the discourse that pervaded all the way through this era. And so, you know, to to, to get to 21st century about our geography on this is to lose exactly. the kind of right. cultural resonance that, that the city had in that era, in the crisis era.
1: Right. Yeah, and as we're we're getting towards the latter sections of of you know the work and the narrative, the, a very important one. So much of this does deal with you know that the, both the experience of migration, the urban crisis, uh, and, and that. So there's a, there's a real heaviness to the story. Um, but I think a, another great you know narrative line uh, along it is is how Latinos remake the city, right? Mm-hmm. As you put it, uh, how they made claims to the city and eventually end up you know. Essentially, you know, end up saving it in a way. Can you talk a bit about how that that happened?
0: Yeah, you know, in some ways, to me, this is the part of the story that I thought would be the least controversial. Because <laughs> naively, <laughs> <laughs> because you know, there has been such tremendous emphasis on the role of immigration of in reinvigorating urban spaces right. and. The fact that, you know, cities that have post-industrial cities that have actively recruited immigrants that have really tried to bring increased immigration to their area as a way of bringing new energy, new numbers, new capital to places that have been suffering from disinvestment for decades. And so the fact that, you know, that Latino immigration turned around Lawrence's population decline, the fact that now when you walk through this, the city, there are people playing in the park and the, you know, the fact that there are businesses open on Essex street and that they are often Latino run businesses or transnational businesses. Um, you know, this to me seems, this we know this already, right? Mm-hmm. When you have an area that has been going, where, that has experienced flight and disinvestment and decline, well, if, a, if tens of thousands of new immigrants show up there, they're going to bring their children to fill the schools, they're right. going to bring their money to, to, to invest in new businesses, they're going to spend money, they're going to reinvigorate an area, Ultimately, this has been somewhat controversial in Lawrence that, you know, there has been um, part of the response of the book has been, you know, more of the narrative that I wrote about of, of longstanding residents, white residents in the area saying, no, Latinos ruined the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I absolutely do focus a lot on the, the this na- the this would be a ghost town narrative. As I say, there's an activist right. who says early 1990s when Latinos are, you know, reinvigorating the downtown and when they're having cultural celebrations in the commons, when there is this kind of infusion of new energy and new money and new resources. And one of the activists says, you know, basically responding to all these long standing attempts to of white residents say, go back where you came from, go back where you came from. He said, if we were to hypothetically leave the city, Mm -hmm. this would be a ghost town. Right. And so absolutely, you know, through both kind of formal organizing um, and through informal, just support community organizing, community formation to uh, Latinos, transform the city and took what had been in a very basic way, a dying city through flight and disinvestment and have brought it back to life in a very profound way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that part of the narrative, it's you know, it doesn't necessarily, uh, what, what I appreciate is how you write about it. it. It shows in ways a, you know, an agency, the agency, of course, of the Latino migrants. Um, their happier tones, you know, towards the end uh, of the book. But at the same way, it's it's not lost in that, you know, you're still situating it in, uh, you know, the larger structural, you know, economic uh, constraints that are still on, you know, Lawrence today and, and that people still experience. So in ways, it you know, it's, it's a very different city and it's you know the, mm-hmm. the former white residents. You know they, uh, as you, you write, they they're perennial stuck in, in this type of nostalgia of mm-hmm. bringing the city back. You know to mm-hmm. what they think they remembered it being, which mm-hmm. you know isn't necessarily right accurate, right? Um, uh, so all that to say that uh, you know it. it I, I feel that the the book ends on on a great note that uh, both gets at the complexity of what this space is today, um, how Latinos have have made the best of, you know, a very difficult situation, um, and, and indeed, you know, there's there's a number of, you know, parallels that you can see to many other different spaces in the country, I think, with this. It shows both the uniqueness of it, um, you know, the particular space that Lawrence is, but then also, uh, you know, continuities that, that we see, even you know, discussions that are happening in the media today about what's going on with, whether it's cities, uh, uh, suburbs, you know, I just saw an an article, I think it was in in the Atlantic yesterday, talking about you know a, a, supposedly the the rise of a suburban crisis, how mm-hmm. suburban poverty is is outpacing or has outpaced urban poverty growth at least since the nineteen nineties. So um, we'll see where that goes, but you know <laughs> all of that kind of based in the same uh, again factors that you discuss in this book. You know deindustrialization, disinvestment. You know those same type of patterns are now occurring in in spaces that we once. Presumed we're kind of stuck in Detroit or the Rust Belt. We've mm-hmm. seen them kind of migrate, you know, to these other spaces over time. So, but just, you know, all in all, I, you know, I think a great book, great, great narrative. I appreciate you coming on speaking with us about it. Um, as we wrap up, I was hoping that you could just share with us a bit about what it is that you're working on at this time. Knowing that this is fresh off, fresh off the press. <laughs> <know>. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, I mean, so I have two right now I'm trying to catch up on all the reading that I don't get to do outside my field. So I'm reading only books that are written uh, histories that are before the 20th century. Um, but ultimately I have two kind of projects that I, I, want for my next project and I toggle back and forth between them. Um, one is a more research project trying to historicize uh, the, this, this, the discourse around criminal immigration mm-hmm. and the way that the, mm-hmm. um, Kind of mass incarceration and the rise of zero tolerance policing utilized for lack of a better word, this discourse of, uh, criminal urban immigrant communities. And so targeting, um, as a justification, both to ramp up mass incarceration, but also to kind of create the current regime of immigrant detention and deportation as it currently exists, Um, in terms of increasing the penalties, including the 1996 law that made deportation effectively the consequence, even for legal immigrants who have been convicted even of minor crimes. And so looking at the, kind of trying to historicize the relationship between mass incarceration and that our current immigration restriction system
1: gotcha. and then
0: the other one is more um, Kind of a broader less research more writing. I want to write about um, People who have been imperial migrants who are unsuccessful in their migration and so yeah. I a, a project Called no refuge from Empire about mm-hmm. uh, people immigrants potential immigrants from places like Haiti or Guatemala who have are displaced by your are displaced by u.s intervention but th- who are then prohibited through policy through the militarization of the border through uh, a range through detention deportation prohibited from actually coming to the heart of empire so right. that's the other project.
1: well both of those projects sound fascinating i can't wait to see them you know come out and i know it's gonna take some time i'm not pr- putting pressure on <laughs> you this is <laughs> this book is definitely gonna last uh, a while and, and give us plenty of time to uh, to think about it and talk about it so uh, thanks again for coming on to New Books in Latino Studies. Really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you.
1: Thank you for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Lana Barber, author of Latino City, Immigration and Urban Crisis in Lawrence, Massachusetts, 1945-2000, to 2000, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2017. I invite you to like and comment on our podcast on iTunes or wherever else you receive your podcast episodes. You may also follow the New Books Network on Facebook and Twitter to look out for upcoming episodes in future weeks. Thank you.